have to adjust these things. I've yet to find one of these podiums I just get up there. It's always I have to bring them down a little bit. I don't know why that is. <laughs> First of all, I'd like to thank the committee for inviting me here to share with you on the Altoona Roundup the 16th. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here to share with you this morning. And the hospitality has been real great. Appreciate that. Dan and his wife have uh, been very hospitable to us and uh, very giving and caring, and I appreciate that very much. It's really good to be here and to be among people that some I've uh, paths have crossed through the years and met some new people, and, and that's really great. Uh, my spouse is with me. My, I'd like to introduce to her, Helena. Stand up and say hi. Didn't want to embarrass her, but I just let you know that uh, that's my better half. As a matter of fact, um, the 25th of this month, this is our third uh, wedding anniversary. She's been married three years, and I'm uh, grateful for that, too, and I love her. Thank you. After getting all the evidence, I found out I'm one of them real alcoholics. I was very grateful to be sober, and my name is Bernard. Hi. Dan was trying to pinpoint me, uh, pin me down to say what he needed to share about me uh, up here as his introduction. And I found out a long time ago after coming to this program, it's not so important who I am, but it is important what I am. Because a long time ago, I thought it was very important to you know who I was. And that got me in a lot of trouble. I share some of that with you as time goes on. I believe in what the fellowship says and what Bill says is keep it simple. Keep it simple. Don't want to louse it up. Just, just keep it simple. God has been good, and Dan mentioned the program that we run. It's an outpatient program, and it's about helping others, sharing and caring. This is what this is about. Caring the message. Caring the message. It was very difficult for me to distinguish between carrying a message and carrying a mess at one time. But that's what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is about. And it's been a wonderful weekend. I listened to Tom last night and the beauty of identification, not so much sharing, but just identification of what is and the power that carries this thing through. Divinely inspired program, no question in my mind. Uh, I talked with my wife earlier when we first came here, and she said, what's going on with you? And there's something happening to me as I get around you people. The adrenaline begins to stir and begins to flow, and I get that natural high that I know I'm okay, because I'm with you. I'm comfortable. I'm in the right place. I'm in the right place. I see many patients come to a clinic and come to a treatment 
and I welcome them and say, Hi, I've been expecting you. And they get a kick out of that because they don't know what they mean. How do you know I was coming here? <laughs> I know a long time ago when this program was divinely inspired and set up with Bill and Dr. Bob that they were expecting me. They were waiting for me. They prepared something for me. They prepared a program for living. For living. And that's remarkable because I didn't know how to live before I got here to this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, I was existing, but I didn't know how to live. And just as it says, we'd be rocketed into a fifth dimension of living better than we ever dreamed. I understand that today. It says we are people who are nearly will not mix, but yet there exists among us a camaraderie a fellowship is indescribably wonderful. Wonderful. And the only requirement for membership in this fellowship is a desire to stop drinking. As I share with you this morning, it's only a message of hope that I got. Only a message of hope about life, being happy, joyous, and free. The big book also says we insist on you enjoying life. Insist on that. Not to be miserable in recovery without the booze, but enjoying life. I didn't start out, and I want you to understand this, I didn't start out to be an alcoholic. It was the, first, the furthest thing from my mind. But I am a grateful alcoholic today. Grateful. I am to share with you, just as the big book says, our stories disclosed in a general way. And I'm glad he put that in there. He knew what he was talking about, but we would be here all day if I told you everything that went on with me <laughs> and all night. But in a general way, what I used to be like, what happened to me, and what I'm like today since I'm not using, and there's tremendous difference. Tremendous. What I used to be like was a very frightened and scared and feeling of inadequacy at all the time in my life, as far back as I can remember. And I talked about identification as we share, these speakers have shared. And Tom talked about that emptiness on the inside. I lacked that wholeness. And I came to realize I was sick physically, emotionally, or mentally, and spiritually. And so all three have to be, retreat, or has to be treated in recovery. I found that out. But I was uh, born and raised in the southwestern part of Virginia. I have uh, in a small town called Parisburg, Virginia. And I have uh, two sisters and a brother. And uh, far back as I can know, my mother was sort of frowned on drinking booze. And I didn't understand that, but... Uh, 
I do today. Because alcoholism ran throughout my family. I had an uh, uncle who uh, committed suicide as a direct result of alcoholism. A couple of aunts, my grandfather died from a direct result of alcoholism. But they didn't talk about that in my family. And I didn't understand, but they always said, my, some of them family members said, they, they got it. Oh, they got it. And I was wondering what it was. <laughs> but it was alcoholism. And it ran in the family. And uh, mother frowned on that. And uh, she detested the booze. And so I was caught in dilemma early in my years because I felt this emptiness, not feeling good about myself, and always full of fear and anxiety and what's going to happen. And I didn't feel good about me because of my physical stature and I wanted to be like those big guys and I wanted to play that ball and I wanted to do all those things and I just didn't seem to fit in there. And mother was saying, don't go out there and do that because you'll get hurt. I was a pretty sickly young kid. And so I was scared all the time and had this stuff going on with me. And I remember going off to boarding high school in a town called Christiansburg, Virginia. And I went to that high school and went on campus as a boarding school and I had all the fears and anxiety within me that an individual could have. And I didn't know what to do with it. How was I going to cope with that? Being away from home for the first time. Being out of protection of the parents. My older sister was sort of a caretaker for me. She sort of looked after me, you know. And I didn't know what to do with that, you know. They seemed to be okay. They seemed to fit in there pretty well. I considered myself the, the, the white sheep of the family, you know. <laughs> Just sort of didn't know what was going on. But I wanted to be like you all, and I wanted to do those things. And I walked on campus that day just full of this, all these feelings and not know how to deal with these feelings. And they had some guys there from on the eastern part of the United States, they from New York and D.C. I call them the city slickers. They spoke to have known how to live. And so I wanted to be like them, and I wanted to fit in, you see. But I was always looking into how can I please them, one of them people pleasers thing. I think they call it peer pressure today. If I can, they would share with me, and I would do what they wanted to do. Now, I remember going to the movie one Saturday afternoon over in town in Christiansburg, and... Those guys, since they knew about life, they decided to get some booze to drink. And I was caught in a dilemma. Wanted to please them, but yet I heard my mother saying to me, you're not supposed to drink that stuff. Of course, my mind told me, well, you're away from home and mom will never know. So it's okay. So I drank some booze that afternoon. I didn't like the way it tasted, but I sure did like the way it made me feel. All those feelings that I had, the anxiety, the, the fear just seemed to melt away into the nothingness. And I decided then 
My thinking got in gear. This is the answer for life. Anytime you're feeling that way, you can always relieve it with this chemical. I didn't see anything wrong with it. Mother certainly had to be wrong. She just didn't know how this made me feel. And so that began my drinking career. Go with me, if you will, on this journey. I drank the first time the way I drank the last time. That was very badly. Could not get enough. I drank. I got drunk. They carried me back to the dormitory. And they put me to bed. And I threw up. And I was sick the next day. As sick as any individual could be. I've often heard people say that when they got drunk the first time, I ain't going to touch that stuff no more. But I could hardly wait until next weekend to go back to town to get some more. Because I know that same thing was going to happen. I liked the way it made me feel. During our senior year, they had some people to come by the high school to the professional people to try to uh, solicit uh, the students which way they wanted to go in life as far as career is concerned. And I was taught early, and I, I believe this is true, some principles about life as a youngster. But as I grew and as I got into my alcohol, those principles seemed to just go out the door, out the window. And I believe very strongly is that if I don't have any principles to live by, then I don't have much to live for. And that's why I feel that the 12 spiritual principles of this program is so important in my life today. But those people sort of talked to us and they told us what they, we should do and what they suggested we do as a career. And I was told them what I wanted to do. But I know that I wanted to be a, a citizen of the community and I wanted to be liked and I wanted to contribute to life. I wanted to be a responsible father and responsible husband. I knew that much. A fellow drove up in his automobile and it was a big automobile and it, uh, he stepped out of that automobile and he was dressed pretty fine and I said to myself, that's what I want to be. I haven't talked with him yet, but I just made that decision. And so as we talked, I said, what do you do for a living? He says, I'm a mortician. I said, that's fine, I'll just be a mortician. I wanted to do it fast and get a lot of money and, and just be okay. I thought by the time I got 50, I would retire with a lot of money and somewhere and just not hit a lick of the snake and just be fine. But my addiction had other ideas for me. So we talked a while and I asked him what you got to do to be a mortician. He said, well, you got to go to school. And so upon graduation, I went back home uh, to this small town in Parisburg and I told my dad and mom what I wanted to do and we had to save some money. There were no scholarships or anything at that time and and so I began to work at a service station, washing cars and changing tires, saving my money, living at home. 
to build this little money and nest egg so I could go to school. But here again, I fell into a group of guys. They were older than I, and they drank booze. And I wanted to be like that crowd, and I fell in with them. And I knew that mother wouldn't like that, so I'd slip home, and I'd go to my room and, and pretend nothing was going on. But things weren't moving fast enough, and so I got another job at a hospital working as an orderly. And here again, I fell into a group of guys who like to drink booze, and every evening we go to the state store and we get a fifth of Southern Comfort and we began to drink. That went on for a period of time. My brother and a friend and I would travel to Roanoke, Virginia, to dances. That was our outlet. That was our fun on some weekends. And even then we had designated drivers. That's nothing new that you hear about designated drivers. My dad told us early, he knew about these, these youngsters. He said, I don't want you all drinking and driving. And so we made arrangements between the three of us that who, someone had to stay sober and drive home. That's 60 miles back to Parisburg. I never drove home. I was always the one getting drunk. But I saved enough money, and Dad got a loan somewhere, and I decided to go on to school. And so I went to Charleston, West Virginia, because on the outside of Charleston Institute, West Virginia, is West Virginia State College. And I decided I would commute to college from uptown, and I lived with my aunt uptown. And that was great, because she had half pints of liquor all over the house. <laughs> and I could drink one of them, she'd never know it. I had an awful time getting to school on Monday morning. Many times I would sleep past the stop, and I'd go back uptown, and I'd stay at the American Legion and hang around uptown in Charleston until the time school was out. I managed to get through that first year, and I told Dad that I really want to move on campus. This is my first geographical cure, Susie. Not just the one that got me to Georgia, but I felt there was too much drinking going on uptown, and if I move on campus, there's not much drinking there. But like a bloodhound, I could find out exactly who was drinking on campus and where to get it. And I gravitated to that, those people who like to drink. Alcoholics like to be around people who drink, not like people who don't drink. I managed to get through two years there, and I decided I needed to go on to school. And so I, and that's, after the second year, I went to Cincinnati College of Embalming, and I graduated there in 1956 with my degree. That period of time is the only time in my drinking career I can remember going any extended period of time better than a year without drinking anything. I remember there might have been one beer bust in there and I got pretty high, but not to the extent that it had been. I had this goal in mind. I'd married my first wife, and we'd had a daughter, 
And I wanted to be that responsible father and that responsible husband. I wanted to be that person in the community was worth something. And after graduation, I went back to Virginia and I went all over the southeastern part of Virginia looking for a job in the funeral business. And every place I went, they, they would tell me, you know, Bernard, we don't need anybody. We just hired somebody. Business is slow. They just ain't dying fast enough. <laughs> I became despondent. I remember I went to Lynchburg, Virginia, that last stop, and I went to this funeral home. He says, I don't have anything, but I got a friend in Washington, D.C., who's looking for somebody. And so we corresponded, and I went up for an interview, and I was hired. And that was great. You see, just take this country boy out of the country, and you put him in a city like Washington, D.C., and he's an alcoholic. You've got problems on your hands. Because there's liquor stores on every corner and between the blocks and there's bars and it's a partying city and I love to party. I love to go places and see faces. You see, and on top of that, you see at home they call me Bernard, Bernard or Bernie. And when I got to Washington and got that job, they called me Mr. Carter and I thought I had a ride. The eagle was going high, and I could scratch my head out here, it was so big. And I began to make some money. And I began to think I was somebody. Not only did I suffer from alcoholism, but I suffered from big shotism. And that was to be almost the death of me. Because my false pride would not reach out to you and say, I need you. I didn't need anybody. So I thought, you know, when you read the, the steps of the program, it talks about we. It talks about unity. It doesn't singly. It's about you and I together. One drunk sharing with another their experience, strength, and hope. Ego and false pride almost killed me. But there's some people who helped me to get down to my right size, you see. People who love me unconditionally, and that's what I found when I came to this program. I remember going to, uh, many times, uh, after six months, let me put this in here, that I brought my wife to, to Washington, and uh, we lived at the funeral home, and uh, we lived over top in an apartment. And I remember many times I'd answer the phone at night, and I couldn't remember. I had blackouts early in my drinking career. And I began to lie early. Because people would call the boss and say, what happened here? I tried to call you last night, and I didn't get a response. And he'd ask me about it, and I said, I don't know. Something must be wrong with the phone. You better call the phone company. <laughs> but I didn't know that I was having blackouts at that time. And he got after me many times and says, Bernard, I feel like you're drinking too much. And, and I would assure him that I wasn't. I was just having a good time. And... You see, I, I became, as most of us, or a lot of us alcoholics, very good at what we do. 
I became a very good embalmer. My specialty was restorative art. You see, I could build a face out of wax, and that was good, and I became in demand. And the word got around that I was good, but shortly the word got around also that he's a drunk. And that spread too. And the boss would tell me, Bernard, you have to do this, and you have to quit doing this. I began to have that irrational thinking. And of course, after that came the behavior. I did something that I swore I'd never do, and that was drink on the job. That was against everything I stood for, the ethics of my profession. But there came a time, and I understand in the big book it says, there comes a time when we have no defense against that first use. That defense must come from a power greater than ourselves. Because I didn't understand that at all. I only knew that I knew, when I took the drink, it eased that feeling, that nausea, that nervousness. It took that away if I drank some of the stuff that caused it in the first place. And the only way I could function from day to day was to start off with the drink that started the shakes. And I remember one morning I was really sick and I knew if I was going to function that day, I'd have to take a drink to work with me. And so I took a fifth of booze to work with me. I hid it in the closet. And I had been busy that morning and the other guys had gone out on a funeral service and I had uh, dressed this gentleman and got him in the casket and I knew if I was going to survive, I was going to have to have me a drink. So I got my fifth out of, the out of the closet, and I began to drink. And nobody was there but the boss, and he was upstairs. And I began to take a couple slugs out of that bottle, and I heard him coming down the steps. And I knew he told me that if he ever caught me drinking on the job, that's over. And if anything I wanted to preserve was that job, you see. And so I said, what am I going to do with this stuff? And so I knew I had to hide it, so I put the top on it real quick, and I put it down in the foot of the casket, one of them half couches, you know, from this way up. He says, Bernard, I want you to go down to the morgue and pick up a couple bodies. And I said, sure. And so I jump in the truck, and I go down to the morgue, and when I got back, of course, the guys have gotten back from the funeral service, and they saw the gentleman was ready. And so they just took him upstairs to the reposing room. Now my liquor's in that casket now. And my thought is, how am I going to get this out of this casket? So I say, you know, my thinking is, well, I'll get it before the family comes in. But they come in at a different hour. My thinking's not straight. You know, the big book talks about we have warped our minds. My mind was warped. My thinking wasn't good, Carol, you know, it just gets that way. And so I'll say I'll get it then tonight before after they go home. But one dear brother won't stay with Dad all night. <laughs> so I didn't get it out then. So the ideal time is the next morning for funeral service time. Now my thinking is 11 o'clock service. 
but it's a Catholic service. That's 9 o'clock in the morning. So I never did get my look out of that casket. Wherever that brother is, he's got my booze in there. <laughs> what I wanted that was mine. I began, began to lead the funeral processions and not know where I'm going. I'm just driving and people following me, but I don't know where to go. Don't know where the church is. Don't know where the cemetery is. But I was trying to find a way, and the progression of this disease of addiction, I had it, but I didn't know what it was. I had many incidents similar to that in Washington, and I remember my boss telling me, and this is important, says, Bernard, I really think you've got a problem. And I have a friend in Alcoholics Anonymous. This must have been in the 60s, 61, 62. says, I want you to go to that meeting and see if you can get some help for yourself. I said, sure. I went to that meeting for all the wrong reasons. And if you knew here this morning, I caution you not to compare what's happened to you with what I'm sharing, but try to identify the feelings of what's going on. I went there identifying, I mean, went there comparing myself with those people who talked. And they'd been to jail and they lost families and they've done this and that and the other. And I hadn't done any of those things yet. And so I concluded that I'm not an alcoholic because those people really need to be there <laughs> if that's going to help them. And so I left that meeting that night and I went over to Maryland, right across the line and got some booze. But I understand today that the seed of AA was planted then. And I think that was the divine purpose. Because when I really got in some trouble, when I couldn't stand me, and when I felt so alone, and I had no one to turn to, I knew there was a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. It took me about 12 years or so to get back to stay. I feel very strongly if individuals not ready, they won't stay. I didn't stay. But I told him everything was fine, and as I know this progression of this disease, this illness, as is described in the big book, and the phenomenon of that is Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob and that crew knew that we had an illness in 1939. And there are some people today who don't understand that we have an illness. But I remember things getting worse. And there came a day when the boss told me, he says, Bernard, I cannot tolerate your behavior. And I can't, I'm going to have to let you go. And the only thing I could think about in my mind was how ungrateful this man is. How can he do this to me as good as I am? Well, this place will fold when I leave here. 
Well, they had somebody the next day doing a very good job. And about that time, my wife and two children, she decided she could not tolerate this anymore, and she took the kids and left. And the only thing I could think about is how ungrateful this woman is. Did not provide a home and a car for her. How can she leave me? But I could not look at my behavior, what I was doing. You know the steps are so beautiful. It says we continue to take personal inventory. And when we're wrong, promptly admit it. That was a big step. I could never admit I was wrong about anything. There's always other people that's creating this problem for me. If they would just get their act together and leave me alone, I'd be okay. This insidiousness of this disease, it creates the loneliness. It drives away people that we love the most. Like no other illness, it says in the big book, you know. This illness is like no other. And I felt all alone. And I think my drinking escalated 100% at that time. I went from job to job in D.C. I could get a job, but I couldn't keep one. I either get fired or I just quit. I went to work at the VA hospital on 7-3 shift, and I took my booze to work with me. I changed the shift, 3 to 11, 11 7. I drank throughout the time. They let me go. I went out and wound up in Washington Hospital Center in the psychiatric ward in the padded cells. That insanity, like all, no other insanity, it was talked about. And padded cell, don't know how I got there. They told me I disrupted that community. And how, I don't know. But I told them that you can't keep me here. I can sign myself out of here. And I called one of my drinking buddies and said, come and get me. And he did, and I signed out of that place. Can't lock me up. He picked me up, and he had a fifth of liquor. and says, Bernard, ain't nothing wrong with you here. Take a drink. And I said, fine. But it came a point in time when I couldn't stand me, and I decided Washington's not the place for me. Another geographical cure. I decided to go to Columbus, Ohio. I wanted to wipe the slate clean and start a brand new life. Brand new life. Leave all of that behind me. The past is the past. What I didn't understand is wherever I go, I carry me with me and I carry my addiction. And it was just a matter of time in, in Columbus, Ohio, where my older sister lived. And I lived with her. And I got a job at a nursing home, 11 to 7. And I stopped by the bar and take my booze to work with me. It was a constant pattern. And I'd get off in the morning, I'd go to the bar, and I'd buy a drink, and the barmaid would give me another because I got in good with her. I was a good talker. And I'd go home and sleep a few hours and get up in the same routine. And I decided this is not the place for me. I need to go to Georgia. Because I'd been down to Atlanta several years prior to that on a vacation, 
and it was a funeral home over there in southwestern Atlanta. And the guy said, if you ever need a job in this area, come on down, I'll give you one. Somewhere that stuck in my mind. And I came down to Georgia. It was the same thing in Georgia. It was in D.C. and Columbus, Ohio. If I am not the problem, there is no solution. I was the problem. It wasn't the city. It wasn't the, the, the other places. It wasn't the people. It was me and my addiction. I couldn't come to grips with that. I knew I drank too much, but I'm surely not an alcoholic. I can't be. After all, look what I've accomplished. First in the family to go to school, get a degree. Egotism, the great I. I got a job at that funeral home in southwest Atlanta, and that was short-lived. Next door was a liquor store, and I had a credit account at that liquor store. I didn't care about the rest of the bills, but I was going to pay that one. And shortly after that, I got fired, and I went to hospital and got a job there. The nurse confronted me one day because she felt, thought I was drinking on the job, and I swore I wasn't. But people would go out and they'd eat their lunch, you know, and I'd go out and drink my lunch. And I came back to the doctor's hospital, that's the name of the place, and I was in the doctor's lounge and I got sick and it was hot in there, and I vomited all over the doctor's lounge and down the hall, and I was fired that day. Came back to work the next day like nothing had happened. I was fired again. <laughs> Don't remember. The nurse who fired me is uh, in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous today. But I left there, and I remember trying, trying my best to not drink. I remember being downtown, Atlanta, and uh, bumming some pennies to get some wine to drink with the guys. But I had these grandiose ideas even there telling them how great I was. I'd gotten married for the second time, and this person had found the program called Al-Anon. And I used to go to jail in Atlanta, oftentimes I, I liked to drive when I was drinking and I'd always get these DUIs. And I had three DUIs in one month and I banged up a car and no licenses and no insurance and uh, the judge gave me two years sentence, was run concurrently which made a year. And I did six months of that in Fulton County Jail and I wondered why I had to stay in there and I called my wife at that time, and I said, come and get me. Prior to that, if I call her, she'd come and get me out, and I promised her and God and everybody else, I ain't going to do this no more. But soon as things smoothed down and smoothed over, I'd ease right on back in doing the same thing. But I called her that time, she says, I can't do that. And I said, why not? She said, because I'm not responsible for your behavior. I said, where do you hear that mess? 
<laughs> she learned something. I guarantee you, they said Alcoholics Anonymous will mess up your drinking. Al-Anon mess up your drinking if they ain't working that program right. But I think that's the greatest thing to happen to me for me to be there for a time for me to be away from the people out there in the world because they brought an inpatient meeting there of Alcoholics Anonymous inmates from the outside and there's when I got my first big book and in that big book a fellow wrote Bernard when you read this I hope it will bring a message of hope for you warm regards Hank D from Marietta Georgia never seen that guy anymore but I still have that book today I would like to tell you that was, and that was signed on March 1973. I'd like to tell you that was my last drink. But when I got out of jail, the insanity of this disease, I went straight to the liquor store and got some booze. And I began to drink a couple drinks and I said, I'm not supposed to be doing this. And I gave it away to a couple guys on the street there because they looked like they needed it. And I walked a couple blocks and I says, why did I give my liquor away? So I'll get some more. I'd like to tell you the beginning of the end for me. I remember one Sunday morning I had a terrific hangover. And I went to the bootlegger and I got some booze, some gin and some wine and some beer. And I went back to that apartment and I began to drink and the magic was gone. It no longer did that what I wanted to do for me. The shakes were still there. I just got sicker and sicker. And I began to need to go to the bathroom and I threw up. And I pulled up in the mirror and I saw what I had become. From a successful business person to absolutely nothing. I could not stand me. I could not comprehend this whole process was going on. And so I crawled back to the bed because I could not walk physically. And I cried out the only prayer I knew. And that was, God, please help me. God, please help me. And I told my wife at that time, I said, call Alcoholics Anonymous. And she dialed the number and handed me the phone. And I talked to a couple guys. And they came over to that apartment. And they detoxed me on orange juice and honey. And I had the cold sweats and I had the shakes. But the thing is, the fellowship was there then. And they began to tell me about the program and the spirituality of this fellowship. And when I was able to walk, they said, let's go. And they began to take me to meetings. I had not found it necessary to take a drink since November 4th, 1974. And for that I'll be eternally grateful. It's not so much what I did as but what you did and people like you did for me. Because you began to share with me some unconditional love. 
And I didn't know about that. I began to go to those meetings and I felt that one requirement. Desire to stop drinking. Now I didn't know how this thing was going to work. I had no idea I could, what a life of me could not see going around with a group of people like you with a number 30 or 40 whatever was going to help me with my problem. I just could not see that. I could not see how sitting around with a bunch of drunks going to help me with my drinking problem. It's got to be more to it than this. It's just got to be. And I began to go and I began to hear and I began to feel again. I believe recovery is an inside job. And I began to hear things that began to make sense, not at first. But I could identify with the powerlessness. I could not drink successfully. And I could see totally my life was unmanageable. There's no question about that. And then I came to believe that there was a power greater than myself. Now I've been searching and searching for this power and I've been searching for recovery many years. When I was in D.C. I used to go to church and I was on the deacon board and I sang in the choir. But the only problem was before I went upstairs to the deacon bench or I went to the choir I had to drink a half pint of booze. I'm not proud of that, but I, custodian and I would get together and I would drink booze in the church. I was looking for something, but I can't find it until I was able to clean house and trust God. I was searching all these years for the spirituality. And then he began to talk about prayer. And I said to myself, if I got to pray like one of them deacons in that church used to pray, I'm lost. I cannot do that. And the sponsor, he was a wise guy. He said, Bernard, why don't you talk to this higher power God just like you're talking to me? He can understand you. You may not understand him, the power, it or she or whatever, but he understands you. Just talk very simply. And my biggest prayer was at night, thanks God for this day of sobriety. In the morning I would say, God help me to help myself to stay sober today. And that was it. That's the way it began. Because I made a decision to step out on blind faith. I believe surely. As I went around the rooms and I saw people like you. If you could stay sober and you were talking about it. And it showed there must be something to this thing. And I'm going to find out what it is. And if you can stay sober then it's a possibility that I can too. There seemed to be an air of joy and happiness that excitement that comes from sharing one with the other began to teach me about life. Again the ego began to crop back up and want to get back in that humanness of me 
And I began to tell my sponsor about things like, you know, I really don't need to go to meeting tonight or tomorrow. You just tell me very lovingly, shut up and get in the car and let's go. He knew what to do. He knew what to say at the right time. There was another guy, I was my second sponsor, and I had three of them, and I needed all the help I could get. And old Big John would say, Bernard, I'm going to come and get you at 7 o'clock or 7.30. And I'd be peeping out the window watching for him. What excuse can I make this time not to go? He'd be honking his horn right on time. And as soon as I got in the car, his mouth would start chapping. And he'd talk all the way to the meeting. He'd talk in the meeting. And when we leave the meeting, going home, he was talking. And he'd get on the parking lot of, of the apartment. John would sit there for an hour talking to me. I said, this guy ain't going to never go home. <laughs> but he was sharing about the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous some vital stuff that somehow seemed to sink into this thick skull of mine. I didn't like going to meetings. I didn't mind the speakers meeting so much because I didn't have to say nothing. And then when I went to some meetings began to share, my sponsor would nudge me, shut up, you didn't say enough. You know. But I want to be known, I want to stand out. And then I began to let the program work me. And I was out of a job for six months, and I didn't know what to do. And I talked to my sponsor, and that's a guy who was so wise, he had a, a saying that was phenomenal. All he would say was, Bernard, go home and pray about it. That's all he'd say. And I didn't want to hear that praying about it. I want an answer now, whatever it is. Go home and pray about it. But I went to pray about it, and showing up in about two weeks, telephone rang. He says, are you working? I says, no. So come out for an interview. And I thought, well, how do these people get my phone number? What had happened, I, a couple years prior to that, I put my application into this hospital, and I don't even remember it. That was Parkwood Hospital. And I went to work at that uh, detox hospital, alcohol and drugs. And they were detoxing on booze. Like people go get the medication for withdrawal, you know, detox. They were giving them liquor. And I told my sponsor about that. I said, how am I going to stay sober in this situation? He said, well, Bernard, what are you there for? Are you there to drink the booze or are you there to, to work? <laughs> so he said, well, go find the sickest drunk you can find and talk to him. So I did. I went to phase one. I see one throwing up, you know, all over the place. And I go talk to him. Easy does it. First thing first. It's going to be all right. He didn't hear a thing I was saying. But I was carrying the message. <laughs> I remember going to meetings and I'd see these uh, clubhouses, they see these little writing on the wall, 
these slogans you all call them. Easy does it, and first things first, but by the grace of God. And I said to myself, you know, my intellectual said, these people can't even finish a sentence. You know, that, that's some. They meant absolutely nothing to me. But today, they're the greatest things I can find in my life. Like one day at a time. And first things first. They're very vital in my life today. I believe today that I've searched for and I'm attempting to achieve emotional sobriety. You know, it talks about in the big book that if alcohol won't be our problem, it's about our daily living. The obsession to use is left. What a miracle. I wanted to use for the first couple months, I wanted to use every day. It was just there. And I talked to my sponsor about it. I talked to the group about it. And I began to get more involved with the program and the steps. And I began to go to step studies every day. And I woke up one morning and the obsession was gone. It hasn't been back since. And I often wonder, where it happened to it? Where did it go? Where did it go? I have a conscious contact with a power greater than self on a daily basis. As I began to try to work the steps or live the steps in my life today, great things began to happen. I've never looked for a job since I've been sober. One has already always come to me. I had an opportunity through this program go back to school to study. Became a counselor in the field, and I'm still I am. But it's not important who I am, it's important what I am. I began to work with some professional people who came to treatment. And I asked my sponsor about that. I felt inadequate again, and I said, how am I going to talk to these professional people? He said, well, Bernard, you haven't got but one message, and that's a message of recovery. All that other stuff doesn't mean too much. Just keep it simple. So speak from the heart. And when you speak from the heart, it will always go to the heart. How true. He's another human being. If he has that requirement for the third step, that the third step talks about in tradition. The only requirement for membership in the fellowship is the desire to stop using. Don't you understand, had it not been for that tradition, that I wouldn't be here today? Because I had nothing when I came here. I had no bank account. If they would acquire a certain car, if it belonged to a certain religion, if it had been a certain race or creed or color, I wouldn't be here. This only membership requirement is a desire to stop drinking one day at a time. I went to a prison. Every Thursday evening, another friend of mine trying to carry a message of Alcoholics Anonymous for over two years. 
I don't understand. I don't know if any of those people, guys, got sober or not. But I stayed sober. Trying to carry the message to the best of my ability. Reaching out to others. The steps of the program allowed me to have a renewed relationship with my children, my daughters. I don't remember them growing up. I'm not proud of that, but when I was home, I was drunk most of the time, and I was away from home a lot of times. They just sort of grew up. I was able to use the eighth and ninth step to make those amends. I made ex- amends to my ex-wife and my ex-boss. As a matter of fact, my ex-boss, I'm his sponsor in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous today. The one who fired me. I think I have, and I feel very strongly I have a better relationship with my daughters today than any man would ever dream of. Well, they know Dad's an alcoholic, and they know he's in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. My youngest daughter married a young man, was engaged to a young man who had a drinking and drug problem, and she just flat out told him, says, I will not marry you drinking and drugging. Says you need to go talk to my daddy because he knows how to stay sober. I have a granddaughter today by that marriage. I'm very grateful because I almost missed all that. Almost missed it. It's all because of this program of Alcoholics Anonymous that I've come to know a new freedom and that new happiness you talk about. You know. I remember so plainly as trying to fix somebody as I worked with them in the program. And I got that job and I was going to gun hold, try to fix them, cure them. I talked to my sponsor because they kept, some of them kept getting drunk. And I, I talked to my sponsor about it. He said, well, Bernard, let me ask you something. Did you get you sober? I said, no. So how are you going to fix somebody else and you couldn't fix yourself? He said, when you find out how you fixed somebody or cured somebody, as you say, let me know how you did it. Say, if you take responsibility for, your reco- for their recovery, then you have to take responsibility for their relapse. And I couldn't do that. All he got is one message, and that's the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. How's it work, Bernard? I don't know. Read the big book. It tells exactly what to do. My step today is step 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with the power. Praying only for knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out one day at a time. I have a daily reprieve from using contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. I believe that wholeheartedly today in reaching out to others. Yes, I work in the field today 
but I'm in good standing with my AA group, Easy Does It group in Atlanta. Because that's where I found that feeling that I've been wanting is from people like you. They began to heal. I began to heal through the love of that fellowship. And I'll be eternally grateful for that. And I've heard many times around certain times of year they have many meetings on gratitude. And that term reminds me of a spiritual that was written, Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils and stairs, I've already come. And this is grace that's brought me thus far. And his grace will lead me on. I know that today. That I didn't get me sober, and I don't keep me sober. It has to be from a power greater than self. And when I'm able to internalize that and understand that and rely upon that, and if I believe that, and I believe that reliance means, uh, belief means reliance and not defiance. And so I must rely upon that power. And that power works through people. People just like you. I believe that with everything that's in me. I believe that God put people in my life who are supposed to be. And at the right time. And so I tried to give back to the best of my ability what was given to me. I've come to know a new freedom and a new happiness. I do not regret the past, nor I wish to shut the dawn. I comprehend the word serenity, and I know some peace today for the first time in my life. I'm grateful for that, and I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for the newcomer who comes to this program because I know there's a way out for them as it was for me. I'm grateful for the people who have 20, 30 years or 40 years because that tells me that the program still works if I'm involved, if I do what I'm supposed to do. I try to work the principles to the best of my ability today. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect with that. My name is Bernard, not St. Bernard. But I'm going to do the best of my ability today and ask guidance for my higher power. And if I feel like if I do that, then I'll have that emotional sobriety that I want. When I don't have to be restless and irritable and discontent. No big deals anymore, Rick. I can just hang on one day at a time and do what I'm supposed to do. I usually share at the very ending of my sharing something that was dear to me and I heard it some years ago. And that is, if you're looking for sobriety, may it please your God you find it. And if you have sobriety, may you please your God you keep it. For it's far easier to stay sober than it is to get sober. Thank you so much for listening to me this morning.